tombs and treasures, texts and tells. You're listening to The Dirt with Dr. Dave. Digging through the archaeology, the history, the sacred stories of the ancient Near East will uncover a past that you never knew before. Get ready for The Dirt. Well, thank you for joining me again here on The Dirt. I'm Dr. David Maltzberger, your host. Culture and religion are intimately bound together. We saw that in our last episode as we began to examine the Epic of Gilgamesh. But religious values and worldviews are always widely debated in academic studies. Our human values always have some sort of religious connection. And we have to understand those connections between worldviews and values in order to interact successfully across cultures. That was true in the ancient world and is still true today. There are two different types of worldviews that people have. There are traditional worldviews and there are what people consider modern worldviews. Worldviews are both engines of change and engines of continuity or stability. We're going to look today at the concept of ancient mythology. Stories such as the Epic of Gilgamesh and others that we'll mention will examine the nature of myth, how it functioned in the ancient world, and how, by understanding mythology in its ancient context, we can even better understand some of the movies that you watch today. If you're willing to, Let's get started. Most of us are used to using a definition of myth that goes back into our early childhood, perhaps our young days in school. We generally suggest that a myth is a story that's not true. Maybe we think that it has to do with ancient gods and goddesses. And that's partially correct, but that's not everything a myth is. I like to define a myth as an ideology in a narrative form. It's a set of beliefs which are expressed in the form of a narrative story. Another writer has defined a myth uh, in its function of ordering or explaining the present physical political, or social world for the society in which it was produced. That is to say, myths are stories that explain why things are the way they are. And that's another function of the myth being an ideology. What we believe is true. What we believe is good. Why we believe the world is structured like it is. These things define for us what a myth really is. Bruce Lincoln, in an article he wrote, once uh, said that, more precisely, mythic discourse deals in master categories that have multiple reference, the levels of the cosmos, terrestrial geographies, plant and animal species, logical categories, and the like. Their plots serve to organize the relations among these categories and to justify a hierarchy among them, establishing the rightness, or at least the necessity, of a world in which heaven is above, the lion is the king of beasts, and the cooked is more pleasing than the raw. A myth 
justifies why society is organized like it is, why certain people are leaders and others are followers, why people are expected to behave or do the things that society in general expects of them, what is real, what is good, what behavior should be. Myths are ideologies in a story format. The main characteristics in myths are usually gods, supernatural heroes, and human beings. All three of these meld together to make up the storyline. Think of some of the ancient mythic tales that you know from the Greco-Roman world. Zeus, the godhead, pursues a human female down on earth, and they produce a child. And that child is neither totally god nor totally man, but a superhuman, a demigod, as it were. As sacred stories, myths are often endorsed by rulers and priests and closely relinked to, li- to religion. That's because they endorse and they support why things are the way they are. In a society in which it's told, a myth is usually regarded as a true account of the remote past. And so, last episode with our story of Gilgamesh the king, people actually believed that in the distant past, a superhuman, a demigod, ruled from Uruk, whose name was Gilgamesh. Now, many societies have two categories of their traditional narratives. There are their true stories, which are generally considered mythic by those who study them, and there are false stories or fables, like Aesop's fables. Remember the tale in Aesop where the lion is hunting and he catches a little mouse and he's about to eat the little mouse, but the mouse says, Oh, Mr. Lion, don't eat me. If you let me go, I'll do something good for you. And of course, later in the story, the lion is caught in the hunter's net and the mouse comes along and chews the ropes and frees the lion. Now, of course, we all know that this isn't a true story, that after all, mice cannot speak. Though we may recognize that a fable, a traditional tale, is not true, it may have some moral or ethical teaching that it does communicate, which is a value of the society. A myth, on the other hand, is considered completely true. It really happened. And myths are generally set in a primordial age, back when the world had not yet achieved its current form. If you think of the Hebrew Bible, in the opening book, the book of Genesis, the story of creation is a mythic tale. It is set long, long ago in a galaxy, our own in this instance. How do myths function then? Well, myths explain how the world gained its current form and how customs and institutions and even taboos were established. Joseph Campbell gave his entire life to the study of ancient myth. 
Joseph Campbell was an American professor of literature at Sarah Lawrence College, and he worked for many, many years studying comparative mythology and comparative religion. He gathered the mythic stories of cultures all around the world, and Campbell saw within those stories very common elements. And so as we study mythic literature today, we're indebted to Joseph Campbell and the work that he did, which helped us to better understand these ancient tales. Campbell defined myths as having four basic functions. He said, first of all, there's a mystical function to mythic stories. They provide us with an experience of awe of the universe. Think about the tale of creation in the book of Genesis, how it creates a sense of wonder. In the beginning, the earth was formless and void, and God speaks, and the world is created, and God speaks, and light shines. The mystical function helps us to understand how marvelous the world is in which we live. Likewise, there's a cosmological function to mythic tales. They explain the shape of the universe, why the heavens are above and the sea and the earth are below, why the earth and the sea are separate from one another, why humans and animals seem to be similar, but they're so very, very different. Myths also have a sociological function. They support and validate certain social order issues that we've referred to before. They explain to us why the king is in charge and why we should serve the king. They explain to us why we must bring gifts to the gods at the temple of the gods in order to appease them or ask for their favor. There's also a pedagogical function in that myths teach us how to live a, a human lifetime under any circumstance. No matter where we find ourselves, our cultural understanding goes with us, and it helps us to interpret the actions of others, and it helps us to understand what we must do in this world around us. Surprisingly, ancient Egypt had fewer mythic tales to pass down to us than some of the other cultures. Mesopotamia was the home of a great many mythic tales. In fact, a number of them have to do with stories of flood and creation. This great flood is known in several versions of stories from Mesopotamia, and the hero is generally saved by his god who instructs him to build a boat. In the ancient Mesopotamian worlds, human beings were considered to be slaves of the god. That comes from one of the creation stories. And because human beings as slaves were so noisy, the god Enlil finally decides to reduce their numbers because they're keeping him from getting his sleep. But the god Enki, who is humanity's creator, thwarts the god Enlil at every turn. And sure enough, when El Enlil tries to destroy humanity completely, Enki saves one human being. And in some stories, a future flood is even avoided by choosing some other mean to avert overpopulation, like uh, making sure that a certain number of women will be sterile and not give birth to any children. It's interesting to note that the biblical flood story of Noah and the ark that we find in the book of Genesis shares some common 
features with ancient Mesopotamian stories, it may not be directly dependent on any of them, but both the Mesopotamian stories and the biblical story do seem to share a common origin. Some people suggest that that common origin goes back to the end of the last ice age, maybe about 10,000 years ago, when melting ice actually flooded the Black Sea Basin and created a huge scale flood that destroyed a number of towns, and the collective memory of that great catastrophic event has been passed down in that part of the world in the form of these great flood stories. But flood stories are not the only myths of the ancient world. In fact, some are creation myths. The Babylonian story of Marduk, is one in which the young god Marduk goes to battle with an evil goddess whose name is Tiamat. And in the great cosmic duel that takes place before the creation of the world and mankind, Marduk is able to slay the goddess Tiamat and her evil consort as well. From the body of Tiamat, which he cuts in half, He throws half upwards, and it becomes the skies, the heavens, and he throws down the other half, and it becomes the earth itself. And from the body and blood of her consort Kingu, he forms man, a savage man, whose job it is to serve the needs of the gods so that they may take their ease. And you can hear in that story how it describes what the responsibility of humanity is toward the gods. We are to provide for the gods, lest they become angry with us. They're all-powerful. And so we give them gifts in worship so that they will be placated and happy. It also explains why Babylon is the chief city of all other cities, because Marduk is the patron god of Babylon. And so the story explains why this nation is great, and it explains what the responsibility of the populace is. The myth of the battle between Marduk and Tiamat is known by its ancient title, which is the opening verse of the story, It's called Enuma Elish. In the ancient world, we know most of the stories or narratives by the opening line of the book. Therefore, the book of Genesis, the mythic story in the Old Testament, is known as Barashit, in the beginning, rather than Genesis, which is a title that's applied later in the text's history. So we see that ancient myths explain how we are to behave. They explain why our values exist. They relate what we believe. And all these things together form the worldview of the ancient people who believed these stories. They explained what was real, what was true, what was expected of them as they lived their lives. There are some ancient myths which are about descents into the netherworld. Other ancient myths are about ascents into the heavens. A myth which talks about descending into the netherworld is a katabasis. 
Going up into the heavens or journeying skyward is an anabasis. In the descent of Inanna, who was the goddess of love and war, she visits the netherworld in this Mesopotamian myth. And as she goes down into the netherworld through each of the gates of hell, she has to give up one item of clothing. And when she reaches the center of the netherworld, she's naked and powerless. And because of that, the world above, the world in which we live, loses its fertility because of her disappearance. She's ultimately revived by another who is sent by the god, and the god Demuzi, her lover, takes her place there in the underworld. There are several different versions of this story. In fact, there's a Greek version of the story that takes place at Eleusis. And this is the Eleusinian myths, which you have heard about. This ancient Greek myth centers on the cult of Demeter and Persephone. And the daughter, Persephone, is abducted by Hades, the king of the underworld, and he's carried, he carries her down into hell. And whenever she is absent from the earth, the earth is cold and sterile. But she's ultimately allowed to go back and to visit her mother during the year. And whenever she returns for that short visit, the earth flowers once again and plants flourish. And so the story, as an old agrarian cult, explains why the earth flourishes and then dies and then flourishes again. It explains the cycle of the seasons. As we have seen in the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, some myths change and develop as they're told and retold over the years. In the myth of Nergal and Eresh Kigal, Nergal apparently has insulted the vizier of the netherworld goddess, and he's ultimately sent down into the netherworld as a punishment. Ultimately, in one version of the story, he ends up marrying the goddess. But in a middle Babylonian version, it's Nergal who takes the throne of Hades by force, and in other later versions, the narrative really turns into a romantic story in which the goddess longs for Nergal when he abandons her for the world above. And so you see myths develop and change as they're told and retold. But every myth has a purpose. Storytellers don't just tell stories to entertain. They tell stories to inform and to educate and sometimes to train. And in that storytelling process, people are entertained. The ancient Egyptian mythic stories often center on concepts of order and disorder. The story of Osiris and Isis, and another version of the same story, the contendings of Horus and Seth, are stories about the struggle for the supremacy of the world between Osiris, who represents order, and Seth, his brother, who is the god of disorder. In our stories, Osiris is generally murdered by Seth, and his body is ultimately rescued by his sister and wife, Isis. Then his son Horus will 
do battle or struggle against Seth, the god of disorder, in order to see who becomes preeminent. And of course, in our stories, order always vanquishes disorder. Another Egyptian myth has its origins in ancient Canaan. It's the story of Ashtarte and the sea. The goddess Ashtarte is a goddess of fertility, and in this story, the sea, Yam, threatens to cover up the heavens and the earth and all the sky if he does not receive sufficient tribute. And Astarte goes to give him the tribute, to deliver it to him, and he demands that she be given to him in marriage. This ancient Canaanite story, which found its way down into Egypt, is related to other ancient Canaanite tales, which have been found at Ugarit, coastal Syria. This collection of tales, known as the Bale Cycle, appears on six very large tablets and on several fragments that have been discovered. Uh, only about half of it is extant. That means they are preserved. But the story was probably uh, written down in this form around the year 1250 BCE. And this story deals with three different uh, mythic tales. The struggle of Baal, the storm and fertility god, with the god Yam, the sea, over who should be the king of the gods. Also, it deals with the building of a palace for Baal, and another deals with the struggle of Baal and the god Death. At one point, Baal is a captive of death as he descends to the netherworld, but his sister Anat finds his body and slays Death, and so Baal is resurrected and fertility returns to the world. These two gods, Baal and Death, are sort of like uh, our modern-day comic heroes because they live to fight another day, and somehow they're resurrected and they fight again. There are a number of these mythological texts from ancient Ugarit, which include some fairly amusing stories about the god El, who is, in this version, an ineffective father god. As we've seen, myths are ideologies in a narrative format. They're stories that tell us what we value, what we hold to be true about the world around us. Now back to our scholar, Joseph Campbell. Campbell gave his life to studying ancient myths. And Campbell wrote a number of books regarding mythic tales, which he had compiled from all the cultures of the world, both ancient and modern stories. Campbell developed what he called the hero's journey as a pattern of the narrative which he found in these ancient mythic tales. These describe the typical adventure of an archetype whom he calls the hero, the person who goes out and achieves great deeds on behalf of the group, the tribe, or the civilization. A summary of the hero's journey became a very, very important document over the past 50 years. In Hollywood, one screenwriter came to recognize that the way that ancient mythic tales were put together, as summarized by Campbell, would form the perfect basis for writing a good movie script. And so a summary of the hero's journey 
became a widely desired uh, document for a while in Hollywood. In fact, if you think about it, once you know the story of the hero's journey, you'll come to recognize that many of the movies that you enjoy best, including almost every Disney movie that you've seen of late, all the animated films, are based on this hero's journey. In fact, the Lord of the Rings stories are based on this journey as well. It's not that everyone borrowed from Campbell. Oh, later screenwriters did. But J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings stories, recognized for himself how stories of great heroes followed a certain pattern. And what is this pattern? Generally speaking, a hero who is uneasy and uncomfortable or unaware is introduced to us so sympathetically that the audience finds that they can identify with the situation or the dilemma in which the hero finds himself. He's shown against a backdrop of the environment and heredity and his personal history. There's some kind of polarity, good and bad, in the hero's life that's pulling him in different directions and causing him stress. There's a dissatisfaction. But then a call to adventure occurs. Something shakes up the situation, either an external force or something rises up from deep within the hero's heart. So the hero has to face up to the beginning of change within himself. The hero, though, tries to refuse this call to adventure. The hero fears the unknown and tries to turn away from the adventure. But generally speaking, the hero's going to meet up with a mentor. Yeah, just like Aladdin meets up with the genie in the lamp. So our hero comes across this seasoned traveler of the world or worlds who gives him or her in some of our movies training, equipment, or advice that's going to help them on their journey. Now, sometimes the hero reaches within himself or herself to some source of courage and wisdom, but always now we begin to cross a threshold. And at the end of Act One, our hero commits to leaving the ordinary world and entering a new region or condition that has unfamiliar rules and values. Bilbo Baggins leaves the Shire and goes off to discover a world of darkness versus light. And along this way, there are tests and allies and enemies. Our hero is tested and sorts out all the allegiances in this special world. Ultimately, our hero and his newfound allies prepare for a great challenge in the special world. Now, remember our story of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is a king and things aren't going well and there's problems. And who comes to him? Ultimately, he is given a sidekick, an ally, in the form of Enkidu, the wild man who is civilized. And so our hero and his newfound allies set off on an adventure. But an ordeal 
comes to them. In the middle of the story, the hero enters a central space in this special world and confronts death or faces his or her greatest fear. And out of this moment of death or near-death experience comes a new life. And this new life leads to a reward. The hero takes possession of the treasure won by having faced death. Oh, there may be a celebration, but there's always the danger of losing this treasure again. About three-fourths of the way through the story, the hero is driven to complete the adventure, leaving the special world to be sure the treasure is brought home. This is the road back. There's often a chase scene which signals the urgency and danger of the mission. At the climax, the hero is so severely tested once more on the threshold of gaining his home. He or she is purified by a last sacrifice. There's another moment in which death or defeat is encountered, but there's ultimately a rebirth of self on a higher and more complete level. And so by the hero's action, the polarities that were in conflict at the beginning of our story are finally resolved. The hero is able to throw the ring into the volcano, defeat Sarum the evil one, and the hero returns home or continues along his journey, bearing some element of the treasure that he gained, which has power to transform the world just like the hero has been transformed. Now, Campbell's analysis of the hero's journey applies to many of our ancient Near Eastern stories, and it comes out in our modern stories like The Lord of the Rings or Bilbo Baggins' The Hobbit, perhaps the most famous modern cinemagraphic version of the ancient myth, is the story of Star Wars. George Lucas was a student by virtue of his readings of Joseph Campbell, and he recognized within the hero's journey that which could become a great film. And so the story of Luke Skywalker is based on the ancient mythological cycle of the hero who finds within himself a need to go off and gain redemption. The stories of Harry Potter are another good example of a hero who discovers within himself the need to vanquish the forces of evil. And so are modern tales which teach us the importance of friendship, of right versus wrong, the triumph of good over evil. These tales today reflect the same methodology that ancient stories in Mesopotamia and Canaan and Egypt did for their peoples. These are mythic tales. Now, of course, in our modern movie form, we don't consider these to be true, and yet they're based on the same characteristics. They explain to us what we value. They raise up that which we hold to be true about life and the life of the world around us. And so the ancient myths still drive us today. And mythology, 
makes marvelous movies. So there you have it, an analysis of the structure of mythology in the ancient world and how it still impacts us today. If you have something you've always wondered about regarding the ancient world, why don't you send me an email? Ask your question. Maybe we can cover it here on The Dirt. Visit our website at thedirtwithdrdave.com and fill in the contact box there, and I'd be glad to hear from you. Until next time, keep digging. Dirt with Dr. Dave podcast is written, recorded, and shoveled to you by yours truly, David Maltzberger. Any errors, omissions, mistakes, or unintentional conjuring of ancient Assyrian demons is my own darned fault. Our theme music was composed, performed, and recorded by Colin Tucker. You can subscribe to our podcast at www.thedirtwithdrdave.com. Dave.com.